everybody, St. Paul here, and welcome to episode 38 of Music on the Run. And this is a really cool episode. One of my dearest friends on the planet, Oliver Lieber, is next on Music on the Run. Before we get started here, do me a favor. Wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey everybody, I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donny Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. Hey everybody, St. Paul here. Welcome to episode 38 of Music on the Run. All right, confession time. I took three weeks off of running. Yeah, but I'm back on and uh, it feels great. I ran four miles today and, uh, you know, do yourself a favor. Make sure you take some time out for yourself. Go get moving. You'll feel so much better for doing it. Anyway, I'm back on. I figure the guy who has a podcast about running should probably practice what he preaches, but anyway, my next guest is an incredible songwriter, producer, guitar player, drummer, among many other things. He's had incredible success writing and producing for people like Paula Abdul, The Coors, Aretha Franklin, to name a few. He happens to be one of my dearest buddies on the planet. Please welcome Oliver Lieber. There he is. Hey, we've hey, done hey. this before in the very room that you're in over there. We did this when you and I did uh, an F Deluxe record. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember. That um, was so much fun. Man, how long ago was that now? A couple of years? Three years? Four years? Probably more than that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You, know. you, you don't do a lot of these interviews, so I want to say thank you, first of all, for taking the time out to do well, this. I need to clear the air with you about something. Um, <laughs> uh oh. Because what number? Wait, what number did you say this was? Thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. Yeah. yeah. So it took you thirty-eight <laughs> to call me um, to get to the bottom of the barrel uh, and the end of your Rolodex. <laughs> you know, um, check please. Check please. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, no, All that's right. not true. You're not at the bottom. Now, how will you feel when it goes to seven, eight thousand episodes? Because right. Just then and you go, circle okay. back. You mean? And you circle and then we, back. Then we'll circle back again and tell our story because yeah. we'll be eighty-five, still producing uh, records yeah. together and all that. <laughs> I was just out there. We were hanging in the very room that you're in right now, and we were doing yet another record. It seems like you and I. Well, we have been producing and writing records together for do we even say the 40 word almost 40 years is it i mean 80 yeah so let's not let's not say 40 yet that's coming okay yeah that's coming yeah. you've oh. been in every record i've been on or involved in since i left prince i think yeah. every solo record or, or group record yeah, you just keep coming we, back for more punishment, don't you? Yeah, well, you know, the pay's horrible. Uh, <laughs> the How hours you're getting paid for this interview too, by the way. The yeah. company is not so good. Not so good. <laughs> Never smells good in the room. So you know, how can I stay away? Oh, I know. Yeah, you you want to? For, for those of you listening to this, this is like okay. hanging yeah, out. Yeah, should we brother. start again? No, start again? no. Okay. I think this is the charm of this interview, and I hope it continues down this dismal path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've known Ollery for a very, very long time, and uh, yeah. it's been such a great hang. And we just, we do, we keep coming back for more. Sometimes we make a bunch of money. Sometimes we lose money. And, and the running joke is how much money is this interview going to cost me? And I think that's what you said, right? Right. Yeah. But the truth is, is I, I do it because um, I love working with you and um, you're one of the most talented musicians and writers and, and producers in your own right that I know. And um, it's always fun and it's always 
feeds me musically. So, and, and we're so aligned. I mean, our influences and where we come from um, are just so aligned that there's that, you know, I think that's where you get writing teams and great producing teams and bands where there's just a telepathy and a, you know, just a, a chemistry. So I've always, you know, felt that with you from the first time we uh, were stuck in a room together and someone said, you guys should know each other. And, um, you know, off we went and, and the result of that right out of the bat, right. Ooh, was for sure. All right. I want to know what you've been doing. Okay. Right before COVID yeah. hit, you finished a pretty incredible record for mm. uh, Quinn Sullivan. Tell me a little bit about that record that just came out. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, we had been, you know, I had been introduced to Quinn. Um, I think uh, it, it came through Dave Wolf, uh, Beth Hart's manager, another amazing singer-songwriter who I've had the pleasure of working with in the past. And she's on Mascot Records, which is a, a small label out of the Netherlands. And Dave Wolf, uh, uh, Quinn is on that label. And Dave Wolf essentially made the introduction um, um, when they sort of put it out there that they were looking for someone, they had this really talented guitar player um, who'd been sort of under Buddy Guy's wing um, for years and years, ever since he was, I mean, five or six or, you know, there's videos out there of him playing with Buddy Guy and all these other blues legends as a, you know, tiny kid, the guitar's bigger than him. It's plenty of YouTube stuff on Quinn. But, um, the message I got was sort of, you know, what do you think of him? What do you think of his voice? What do you think beyond just being a blues phenom? Like, do you see something there? Is he an artist? Is he, you know, they were sort of, that label hadn't really dealt with a lot of singer songwriter type artists, John Mayer type artists for lack of a better comparison, but they were essentially coming to me saying, will you get in the studio with him? Will you just, Right. So just see what it's like and just give us some feedback, you know, like, what do we have here? And um, and uh, he he flew out from Boston with his dad and we sat here and um, he played me a snippet of an idea off his iPhone. And it was just off and running. And it was very easy to write uh, with a song sort of wrote itself in a, in a day or so. And um, which ended up on the record. A song called She's Gone. And uh, it kind of went from there. And the record company liked, you know, what they heard and were really surprised by the change of direction, you know, from what they had come to expect from him. And, um, and that started the process of about a year and a half of writing. And he would, in between tour, come and we'd spend anywhere from three to five days, eventually wrote this album, you know. So I had cut the basics before the pandemic hit, he came out here and had, you know, you played on it, um, but, you know, a bunch of great drummers, Abe and Aaron Sterling and David Goodstein and guitar players and, you know, just a bunch of great players. And we, I cut the basics and then the pandemic hit. But I had enough raw material that I could sit here and do, you know, kind of my thing anyway, which is to, you know, sort of um, go in deep and start, yeah, you know, comping and doing all that stuff, doing my own overdubs as I saw fit and trying to fill in the holes, sending you files, mm -hmm. sending other people files um, to try and complete the production. So it was kind of great because I had a lot of time and a lot of quiet and a lot of space in order to really focus in on honing the productions and, and you know, refining the record. That took me about six months into the pandemic and then I really finished that. Uh, Joe Zook mixed the record and did an amazing job. Sure Another really talented guy. Yeah, and so th that was kind of that was kind of what I was into and what I finished um, coming into this pandemic. And then I, and then had nothing, absolutely nothing to do after that, and have been you know I don't know curling up chords. Um, You've been curling you know, cords, throwing things away, uh, organizing. Yeah, pretty, I was you know, making there. sure all the faders are, you know, Unity game. Um, <laughs> no, you know, actually, it's been kind of great because I've been able to get to some of the stuff that you just generally never have time to do or the inclination because you're too busy and you're working. 
And you're a dad. Hello. And I am a dad. I'm a single dad. And, um, and I have the kids halftime. And so, yeah, every other week, it's like I drop everything. And it's, you know, yeah, I'm making uh, waffles. And um, I'm a Uber cab and an yes, ATM machine and uh, <laughs> everything in between, you know. You're a couple of years behind me on that one, and you get to see the future of what it's going to be like to have adult children and the problems and the fun that go along with that. And then I get to yeah. see you deal with what I dealt with about 10 years ago. And welcome yeah. to the hang there, brother man. Thank you. Yeah, I was a late bloomer. And now I get it, you know, because I'm like, you know, ancient and I'm dealing with a <laughs> 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. And it's like, okay, I get why people have kids, you know. It's, Your girls are the most beautiful young ladies, and I just yeah. adore them. I'm their Uncle Paul. Uh, You're their Uncle Paul and their godfather. That's right. Uh, you know, so, I, yeah. I, I Get love ready. those babies. Get ready. <laughs> so you've been an honorary Peterson for about, oh, like 35 years, I guess. Not quite yeah. 40. Not quite 40. We all, you know, we all love you, of course, all the Peterson family. We met you when you were in twenties, and we'll get to how you, you know, our relationship later. But yeah. let's go back to New York City. First of okay. all, explain. We have to. We have to tell the listeners and viewers about your musical family. Will you explain who your pops is? Yeah. Well, um, my dad. He passed away what like seven years ago or so. But um, um, my dad was. Um, half of a songwriting team, um, Lieber and Stoller. Uh, he, uh, he was a lyricist and um, they, you know, uh, just a songwriting team that really sort of um, were at the very, very early stages of rock and roll, you know, I mean, um, and. Uh, Give us um, some names. Wrote... Do you mind dropping some names of who your dad worked with? Um. Got so many people. I mean, Elvis Presley, the Coasters. Oh my God! You know, my head was like, you know, <laughs> you gotta just pull enough. it up. That's I, good enough. That's, that's well, all we need. Those are yeah, pretty big but, names. Um, you know, um, some classic stuff. Some Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock, Stand by Me, Oof. on Broadway, Kansas City. Just you know, a lot of the the stuff that was staples for. Um, for the next generation that followed them, which was Lennon McCartney, you know, and, right. um, and, and a bunch of other teams that came, but um, yeah, they were very early writing and they were the first independent producers actually, which is, I don't know how interesting a fact that is, but up until Lieber and Stoller producers were sort of assigned to a record label. They were the in-house producers much the way I think George Martin was still in England when he, I met the Beatles. He was with what EMI was it? And he was a staff producer. I can't be getting this all wrong. People will correct you. I'm sure. (laughs) I hope so. But they were the first guys to say, no, we're not signing anyone. You know, we'll produce for Atlantic. We'll produce for Warners. We'll produce, you know, independent producers, uh, writer producers. So anyway, you know, um, I grew up with some pretty interesting people, you know, coming through the house I mean, Phil Spector used to walk our dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, Phil worked for your 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 father. Yeah, yeah. The, Lieber and Stoller gave him his start. And there were also a lot of writing teams that uh, worked under, you know, they were so successful for a period of time. They had so much work. There was this like eight to 10 year period where they were doing everything, you know. Um, and um, they had so much that they couldn't possibly write all the material for these records. And they started to sign writing teams, you know, um, Carol King, Goffin and King, Cynthia Weil and man, Barry Mann. I'm going to forget, mm. you know, a dozen of them. Was but this that was sort the of Brill the, building. Sorry. Was this the Brill building? This is the Brill building. So okay. this was, you know, they, uh, they were in the Brill building and they were up on the, uh, you know, up there on the penthouse and, and, um, they signed all these writing teams and literally there was in you know, a hallway and I sort of remember the tail end of this because I was younger and things started to change by the time I was, you know, 10 or 11, things were shifting. But I do remember um, rooms, you know, with pianos in them and, you know, there were songwriting teams in there 
writing songs for, for yeah. records. And uh, that's, that's who my dad was. And that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, you know, he was all about work. If, you know, my brother, my brother is also a great musician, Jed. And um, if we wanted to spend time with my dad, you know, when we were younger, you we pretty much had to get dropped off at the studio. And uh-huh. I'd get plunked in front of the couches, you know, in front of the console. Sure. And it was just like, shh, be quiet, you know. I'm going to hang out and I watch, watch these amazing session players cutting, cutting tracks and cutting records and, and just sort of absorbing and, you know, soaking in the process. It's just um, what your dad I'd, did. And you wanted to see him and you're hanging out and you're getting all this music coming and thrown at you. He pretty yeah. much got that all through osmosis. Of course, your natural ability, but. Yeah, but, you know, and I also think it really affected the kind of player that I became, both as a drummer and as a guitar player, which was, you know, what I saw. And I think my dad talked about this, too, was guys that came in and played incredibly well together, but tight as a rhythm section. And I saw guys that came in and, you know, after grooving for a minute with the rhythm, found their part. And it was just like, and I remember like, you know, I remember the first time I watched a record, I think it was with Marlo Henderson, a great guitar player. And it was this groove and these changes. And I could have even been James Gatson playing drums. And, but he played one note and it went through the changes. And it was the first time I'd heard someone like grab a common tone mm-hmm. and, you know, as a guitar player and play through. And honestly, my mind just went like, it was like so funky and so in the pocket. It was like, and everyone was playing the changes and he was staying on that note. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that appealed to me. I don't know how else to say it. It was, there was just a simplicity and a soulfulness. And I think, you know, in my playing, I've never sought to be like a ripping kind of player, you know, or a chopsy player. I've always wanted to be a pocket player and be a guy that found parts and played in a section. So the the stage was set. Here you are. You're a kid. Your father and his partner are making some of the most classic black music. Right. uh, Which is interesting in itself. Sorry, say that again. No, I just said that's interesting in itself. Here here are the couple of white dudes who are making the most influential black music. Right. And, and, And that must have been absorbed into you as a kid. Your, your love for soul and your love for funk and your love for everything must have come partially through those experiences that you were witnessing. Very much. Because first of all, my dad could not use any of the sort of, you know, by the time I was like 11, 12, whatever, you know, we're talking like now 72, 73, 74. And there's like what we now call classic rock and that it's like he could not use any of that you know you don't want to hear it it didn't move him it never did and from a very early age the records that were in our house apart from all of his like coasters and you know and drifters and you know willamette big mama thornton and like it was all you know the three kings you know bb albert freddie wow. um it was Ray Charles, all that stuff. That was all the records that we had. And that's, you know, when he talked about music and when he got excited and he would talk about singers, it was always black blues or R&B singers. That's all he cared about. That's all that moved him. And that's all that he ever really wanted to do. It happened before I was born, you know, like the, the, what the rhythm, what, you know, look, they were called race records back then. You know, the records that they were making and he, you know, they were recording initially very small regional artists in the South, you know, blues records and things like that. The original Hound Dog was Big Mama Thornton, Willamette right. Thornton, you know, um, Presley heard Hound Dog because it was being played by a cover band in a Las Vegas lounge. No. I mean, he got the song like what, Third Hand or something. I didn't know that but, story. But Lieber and Stoller were interested in making those records with the real, those artists, black artists, you know, and all of the early stuff they did in the early fifties. And for the first seven, eight years, whatever, that's what, you know, that's what that was. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that comes from his growing up in Baltimore and growing up in a ghetto that was really like 
black Jewish ghetto where they were all living together or on top, or I don't know if it was separated by some railroad tracks or, you know, I've got various stories that aren't completely clear to me, mm. but that's where he came from. And that culture, that's all that ever moved him, you know, um, musically and culturally. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I, you know, inherited that. By the time I came around, right, he was in New York and we were living on the Upper West Side, which is certainly, you know, a different background than he grew up with. But what was weird is when I stepped through the, you know, front door, you know, of our apartment, culturally, and what I got from him was who he was and what he was interested in. And it had very little to do with what my life was like and what my exposures were like when I stepped out of that door, you know? Mm. And frankly, musically, I was kind of like dipping into stuff that was 10 and 15 years older because it was like all of his early records. So right. I was kind of getting both then. So I was getting the Stones and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Bad Company as we move on. But it was all mixed with all of that blues and R&B that, you know, I had grown up on. So that's kind of, those were kind of my influences, you know. What an, what an incredible advantage for someone like you and someone like me because my mom did the same thing for me. I yeah. had all the big band swing era right. things happening for me. And that, not only did I love Stevie, but I loved all the stuff that my mom was playing at the time. Here you are, a kid coming up, and you're sitting witnessing these sessions, and you have all the history of, the, uh, of your dad and his partner. And But yet, you're a kid, and you're like, now, wait a minute. I want to do my own thing. Now, did, totally. So you went off on your own while you were in New York, so what are you doing when you're when you're a teenager? You got to be playing out and everything, right? Yeah. So so um, I had a band uh, in high school. Well, I mean, I remember the first time. I think I was eight, and I was at camp. I played the drums. I started as a drummer, hmm. and I was playing the drums. My brother played keyboards, and he had this like Farfisa. It was the Gibson version of the Farfisa. It wasn't even the Farfisa. But and we we went away to summer camp. I was ten. He was eleven. I don't know why I'm telling this story. I'm telling this story because it was the first time there was a talent show and we decided we would play for the talent show. And I set up my drums, had a little Ringo kit. I had the, you know, little three piece Ludwig Ringo kit, but the student version, the standard, not the, you know, not the big boy kit that I eventually got. But, um, right. and we played we, some three chord jam, I, you know, something pretty simple. Mm-hmm. We probably went on for 15 minutes it probably started at one tempo and ended at another. I hope so. Yeah, ended at a different one. Um, but afterwards, what I remember, you know, because all the girls from the girls' side of the camp were on one side and all the guys were, you know, were on the other. And I just remember after um, playing and getting off stage, all these girls coming up to me. And, you know, and that was really, you know, like all this talk about influences and, you know, I mean... Yeah. Let's be real. It <laughs> was like the real deal here. I had found my superpower and it, it, and it was drums and it was rock and roll. We started a band in high school. We played all the local dances around Manhattan, you know, um, mostly the private school circuit. Got and, it. Right. And that was really sort of uh, that would have been seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade. Until I was getting in so much trouble that um, I just got sent out of New York to a little working oh, do, farm. Oh, do tell. Do yeah. tell. Yeah. Give me the short version they, of where you went to, to, to finish your high school years. Well, as surprising as this may seem to people out there, you know, you know, I had a slight wild side to me, a little bit of edge, had a proclivity for getting myself in situations, doing things that were, you know, um, in retrospect, probably not the healthiest, probably not the best choices. But anyway, you know, uh, I was running amok in, as, a, uh, as a teen in New York. And at a certain point, it was at uh, the end of my sophomore year, my dad was like, somebody told him about this school in Vermont, and they had like 85 milking cows, and I would be isolated, and I couldn't get off the hill. And I would, you know, and that sounded great to him. <laughs> bye bye, bye bye, bye Off I went, um, and uh, I was very pissed off. 
I remember yeah. hitting hitting a wall, like you know, in my first two weeks. Was, I, don't, I hit a wall, shattered my hand. So not only was I stuck in Vermont at a play, you know, at a school that I ended up loving. By the way, I, it ended up being an amazing experience, but it, it took a minute. But anyways, cast on my hand. First several months of being at this school, um, I wasn't a morning person. Uh, I was assigned morning barn which you get wake up with your little team at five in the morning in order to walk like a mile to the barn to shovel cow shit, you know, before first period class. And I often didn't wake up surprise, surprise. And I would get freezing cold Vermont stream water, like barely, you know, like frozen at the top, but not so much <laughs> they couldn't break the surface and get, you know, buck full of water poured on me, you know, on my bed, wake up swinging. Um, morning. Good morning. So anyway, I ended up, I last two years of of high school at that school where honestly I didn't um, get to do, I, you know, I wasn't playing in bands. Um, ah. There was one other kid there my last year. I was a senior and this kid shows up, uh, this freshman, and um, he was walking around like, you know, Vermont in the woods, but he had this Les Paul strung really low. He would be walking around outside and he had these headphones that plugged into the guitar that I guess gave you like an amp sound. Sure. So he was walking around with his Les Paul and then I just thought like, who is this fucking guy? You know, like, and we got to know each other and we ended up playing a lot of guitar together and he ended up, uh, his name was Reb. His real name was Rebel. And I thought, oh my God, you know, like, right. is that even a real name? Yeah. <laughs> his name was Rebel Beach. And people might know, Reb Beach went on to play um, for uh, big bands. I think eventually, uh, I'm going to forget it now. All right, you can go look it up. Reb Beach. I'm looking for you. Hold on. He later, he, played, he filled in, he played for White Snake, But before that, it's Winger. Winger. Oh, okay. Yeah, the band that Beavis and Butthead effectively ended um, in one comment on one episode. I think. Oh no! But uh, yeah, any uh, wingers and white winger and white snake is what I could see here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, amazing, amazing rock guitar player and kind of like a pioneer in a way. I mean, you know, really sort of brought a lot to the table in the '80s with the way he played. But anyway, that was him. So we were the only two musicians out of uh, 200 on this little hill in um, Vermont. And thank God for him. So yeah. Reb, you know, if you're out there, thanks. Thanks for being there. <laughs> and then you yeah. went on to, you went on to college, right? So are you playing music in, in, in college at all? Yeah. Um, I had several bands uh, at college, but I finally, um, that I played in and I put one together and I was playing drums in that way. No, I was playing guitar in that band. So I played drums in some bands in college and then put one together with my buddy, Squire Mahoney, um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, called The Unnatural Act. We had a fairly kick-ass band for when you consider that it was sort of like East Coast, kind of like Ivy League school. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, you know, not normally a hotbed for, you know, like, R&B musicians and stuff like, you know, but managed to like find these guys and we had a really good band and we had a lot of fun. So I played all the way through um, college. Um, although I also, I didn't, I left with a semester uh, to go because um, oh. my recreational activities sort of got in the way of my schoolwork. And um, <laughs> I, I took the theme continues, the theme continues, Right. Okay. Um, and uh, I took that, uh, that spring off. I went to New York. Uh, I ended up um, playing drums for one of the village people, um, the construction worker, David Hodo. Uh, yeah, I uh, put a band together for him. My brother played in it. The bass player, uh, a bass player from college who had graduated the year before, George Weiss, another great musician. Anyway, um, uh, sax player Steve Ellis. Ellis, who ended up to go on to play for Bowie uh, for years and years. Anyway, and uh, played for David Hodo. I lasted about 
three months and um, my addictions got really severe and I was unable to really function. And long story short, by July 20th, that summer of 83, uh, I was on a plane headed to um, Minnesota of all places. (laughs) That must have made you happy. We're going to take a little break from the interview right now because I want to tell you about a couple of really cool things. First of all, we're having so much fun with our weekly one-minute funk jams called Funk Friday. We've had so many world-class musicians on Funk Friday, including members of the Steve Miller Band, Fleetwood Mac, Daryl Hall and John Oates, Earth, Wind & Fire, just to name a few. You can check that out on all of our social media, but you can also see it on our YouTube channel. I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of our members who have supported us on Patreon. Don't know what Patreon is? Go to www.patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast, and there you'll get all sorts of information on how you can financially help us produce this podcast. There are all kinds of incentives listed there on the website, and there are many different levels on how you can become involved. We could not put on this podcast without our patrons. All right, let's get back to the interview. That must have made you happy. Yeah, to go to gym. Well, you know, the only thing I knew about Minnesota was at this point in time in the 80s, and at, you know, at school, starting at, I think it was either 1 or one thirty in the morning, Mary Tyler Moore came on and they had back to back Mary. It was like one and then the other. So it was like from one to two or whatever. It was Mary Tyler Moore. And in the beginning, you know, she throws her hat up in the air mm-hmm. and they have this sign that says Minneapolis, St. Paul. Yep. That's the only thing. It's the only time that ever entered my consciousness. And quite honestly, I was so out of it at that point in my life that I didn't know if Minneapolis was the state or Minnesota was this, like, none of it was really clear to me. It was like, that's the only time I heard Minneapolis, St. Paul. I saw it, and, you know, because I was up because I was, you know, Having I had fun. important things to do at 1.30 in the morning. Oh, yeah. And um, I was on a plane headed there to, to treatment. That sort of leads us into, in a way, like how you and I ever came to meet, how I ever came to be in the Midwest, in St. Paul, you know, at that point in my life, which was a really like, you know, left turn. We had, we did a concert three years ago in Australia and you told a little bit about this story going to Minnesota. You didn't want to be there. You didn't know who it's like the ends of the earth. Yeah. Minnesota was in your opinion at that point in time, which I'm sure it was. It's like, here you are, you have to go, you're sobering up. You're yeah. changing your life so you can actually function again. Well, I was planning on being back in New York. You know, I had important things to do. Mm. Um, we had gotten on Star Search. You know, we'd been accepted to Star Search, oh. uh, the David Hodo band. We had done our recordings for it, and we had done our audition. And, you know, like, I had, I had things to do. I, I was a busy guy in my mind, and I had important things to do. And I was going to, like, knock out this treatment thing and get back to real life and you know where music was really happening um which in my mind was in new york city you know at the time and you happened to come to minneapolis at an incredible time actually and this was right before yeah prince this was july so the morning i woke up in minneapolis was july 21st 1983 which was the first morning i ever woke up like so you know sober right Mm, and uh that's my sober day you know that's the last time um the plane ride over you know i had some really bad paul masson wine it's like a little (laughs) screw up top and it was like that it was just Uh, a a bad way to go out you know what i mean it's not the way you want to go out but anyway so yeah you know um Minnesota, in very real ways, it would mark, I woke up July 21st, 1983, and that was the beginning of a whole new chapter of my life. I didn't realize what lay ahead for me, you know. And I met you around 80, Yeah. well, you would, before I, before I talk about when we met, yes. you were there from 83 
you were working in St. Paul, doing more of your rehab things, but you were playing. You were motivated to play at that point in time, right? It, it took me about, a, so, so you know, I went, to, I went to rehab, it was like 30-something days, and then they told me, they really recommended that I didn't go right back to New York right away. You know, people, places, and things where, you know, I had gotten in a lot of trouble. And they said, we really recommend you go to a halfway house. Right. And at that point, you know, one of the fit parts of the program, the 12-step program, is turning your will and your life over to a higher power. And at that point in my life, not being a religious guy and not believing in Judeo-Christian God, and I still, I don't, you know, believe in, you know, I have my own version of spirituality. Um, the recommendations of sober counselors and people in a rehab, that was my higher power. And I sort of went, well, if this group of people, you know, who are sober and are trying to help me in my life are recommending that I don't go back and I go to a halfway house, I'm turning my will and my life over to their, you know, to them. And right. so I went to a halfway house in St. Paul, right near the Schmitz Brewery. I mean, it was classic. It was like in this funky part of town near the Schmitz Brewery. And it was huge, huge, you know, neon sign the mm -hmm. size of like a Broadway billboard. But of course, like some of the letters were burnt out. Oh, yeah. You know, so I don't know what you saw. It was like, or, you know, but it was just it was a low point in my life. So I thought and uh, I spent six months there and you know, when you go to halfway house, they want you to get a job. Um, they want you to get, but they don't want you, if you were a lawyer or you were a doctor, they don't want you going back into your profession. They actually want you to go into work that's humbling because one of the things apparently that we need as addicts and alcoholics is some humility, Got it. not the most humble bunch. So uh, not that I had that kind of profession anyway. And so I ended up doing garden work, I mean, hoeing leaves, not, you right. know, breaking leaves and stuff, busboying, you know, um, waiting tables, eventually becoming like a short order chef, stuff like that, you know, for my whole time that I was there, six months. Once again, at the end of the six months, um, they recommended that I don't go back to New York and I spend a year living somewhere with maybe some of the sober guys that I had been in the halfway house with. Right. Turned my will and my life over to them at that point and said, okay, I'll do that. And went to live, uh, you know, up on Summit Avenue in St. Paul and with, uh, with all those other guys, five other guys in this Victorian house. You know, we each had a little room and uh, shared the kitchen and all working, menial, you know, like odd jobs and just trying to stay sober and try to, you know, like get on track. It really was a, like a year or a year and a half before I could even get up the courage to sit in anywhere. Mm. And that's how it started. There was that little club on Dale, Sweeney's. Sweeney's Champagne Bar. Yeah. And I would pass it all the time going to the restaurant where I was waiting tables or busing at first. And I would pass it. And I remember seeing in the window, it was like Monday night, jam night. And... It, you know, I, I just like was way too nervous at that point in my life. I couldn't get high. I couldn't get dry. I couldn't take the edge off. Right. I hadn't played. I didn't come out to Minnesota with my instruments or a drum kit or a guitar. I had nothing, you know, I had been doing nothing but program and trying to get my life together for over, well over a year. I asked the guys in the house. There was one, I was like, I got to do it. It's a dead of winter. And it was jam. I was like on Monday and Jose Jane. Well, the first few times, I dragged them out there, you know, cold Minnesota winter, and we sat all night, and, you know, and the guy would say, does anybody else, you know, want to sit in? It's like the end of last call, and I've been sitting there all night, and my friends have been sitting there with me, and I couldn't raise my hand. And I think, like, this second, maybe third time I dragged them out, they were like, motherfucker, if you don't raise your hand, like, this time, I'm never coming out here with, you know, I'm not coming out again. It's like, we just sat through, you know, all night and it's like gotta do this and they call me up i can't remember the guy's name but it was like a little r&b band you know okay. um i played i can't even remember it because having an outer body experience i literally was just fucking nervous and i don't know my hands and my feet did something they right. got me through the to the end yep. and at the end of that the guy asked me for my number and said hey i got this little gig and you know 
I think it was, what was the Supper Club? Ruby's Cabaret. No, 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 no. no. There was a supper, a different supper club. Oh, I can't think of it now. But anyway, he said, I got this little gig, this like casual coming up in a week. Would you like to play it? And I was like, he took my number, you know, and that I played that gig. And I think I started to hear about some of the other bands in town. And I Mm. went and I remember seeing um, the TC Jammers. Sure. And Bobby Vandell was playing drums and he's another sort of like local Hero. minneapolis yeah. legend musical yeah, legend sure and god bless you bobby vandell you know like i remember um he caught off stage and that band was smoking you know and that was one of my experiences where i went out and i just thought like fuck there are some great <laughs> players some funky soulful great melanie rosales was singing her ass off and mm-hmm. I mean, I can't remember the whole band, but um, maybe Behringer was playing guitar, Gisel, uh, John De La Selva, De La Selva whatever. Sheer could have been, could have been. Your brother was playing? Probably. Uh, it was just a killer band. And I remember kind of getting up the nerve to come up to Bobby Vandell in, uh, you know, uh, halfway, you know, when it came off stage for a break. And I did this like, man, you know, like. I love your drumming and I, you know, and I hear like this Steve Gadlick here and I hear this there, you know, I just started talking shop with him. And, um, but I was like a puppy man, you know, and I was like, mm-hmm. I'm from New York city. I, I just landed here. Um, I'm a drummer and, uh, I'm just felt like I'm blown away. Well, I don't know what I said, you know, once again, and he said, like, come back out, you know, sometime come out again, man, you should sit in, you know? And uh, I think I'd only sat in, once with that other you know yeah. that first experience and played that gig i hadn't done a whole lot and i remember the next time i went out to see him uh he had me come sit in and uh after that he took my number i'm not sure when it happened whether it was a doug maynard gig or something but he asked me to fill in for him hmm. um uh, for a gig he couldn't do and i filled in i think it was doug maynard and Obviously, it went well enough that I got calls periodically to, to sub for him. And he was so generous of spirit. And so I guess it was one of those times in my life that were so, I so needed somebody yeah. to help me out. And, um, you know, he was there for me. Good man. He really helped me get my start and my confidence in myself and a belief in myself and um you know and eventually gordy did the same for me asked me to fill in a, some a few gigs and these guys just sort of brought me up you know and um i ended up playing around town i ended up uh trying out for uh <laughs> i played in a, i played in a rock cover band called heroes with my buddy ken zimich and that was all like more like van halen and billy idol and all right a whole different you know playing like bowling alleys and different kind of whole different kind of club scene and then uh went from that to um playing in a band called bittersweet which was um all you know whole other thing was much more r&b funk um bass player was rocky garrity who was he was really if you're listening to those tracks from purple rain in the time that's Rocky playing bass uh, and singing uh, the harmony above on the bird. Oh yeah. And playing his ass off and playing that stuff. And God rest his soul. Um, You know, uh, another guy who had, you know, his, had his demons, but man, he was funky. I mean, and a killer drummer ended up playing drums for Jesse Johnson, you know, a few years after that. Uh, And that's where, you know, that we were playing way more, way more funk and R and B in that band. That's kind of was in my introduction into that that part of the Minneapolis music scene. Troy Williams was in that band. Uh, I remember when Rocky left, Sonny T um, right. played bass. Funk uh, came and played bass. Uh, and I remember the first, uh, whatever, you know, I can go off on a bunch of side tangents and stories. Um, I remember the first time Sonny came and subbed, Gar- uh, Rocky couldn't make it. And I had never heard of Sonny Thompson. And Troy was like, man, this guy's coming. To, you know, he's showing up um, uh, to play and he's like, you know, this is the guy that like taught Prince 
a lot of what he knows as a guitar player and a bass player. And, you know, this guy's legend, you know, um, showed up, no, you know, no gig bag, bass, like, you know, <laughs> bass over his shoulder and a six pack and plugged in, hadn't rehearsed, you know, and whatever, and just killed it. Just yeah. killed it. He was like, Sonny Thompson was something else, man. And he's you know? still ridiculous. We just said still ridiculous. with him last week. This is a whole I think it's trip. important. But I think we can fast forward to you and I hooking up. Yeah, yeah. Because I was in the, at that point in time, I was deep in the Prince camp. Yeah. And, my, and these guys know my stories. So I'm not going to get into it, but I was in the, the time and probably the family, and I was just leaving Prince. And I think I had written my entire record, and my brother Ricky produced it, and they weren't sold on having the first single for the record. And I don't know exactly how you and I came to meet. Uh, maybe you do. Maybe you should fill me in. I, I, this is what I remember. So what I remember is you guys, I had come out to see you play, uh, you know, uh, uh, in club at Felty's the first time ouch yes with i think you were sitting in with your brother's band samoa yep. um or you were uh or you were with players players, but I think players yeah. was a little later i don't tiny know tiny bit later not much but man i mean i remember you know it was like you know this like good looking you know quaff white kid you know like yeah playing like guitar on one song and bass on another song and singing i was like i hate this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I had fancied myself like, you know, I play drums, I play guitar, and I'm, you know, and it was like, I just thought like, wow, you know, uh, you know, and he's a good looking kid. And, and, you know, I just remember being really impressed with you. And, uh, but we didn't really know each other at that point. I just, you know, I came out and watched you play and I knew who you were. And I knew that you at right at that time were being groomed by Prince. Right to be the lead singer in this, in, in, in the family. I knew you had taken over a, one of the, the keyboard chairs for Jimmy Jam in the, in the time. And, uh, but that was it, you know? I knew your brother uh, and, and, and I knew who you were. A guy named Dan Brennan, who was a local kind of guy who was starting to manage people mm -hmm. at the time, you know, he, he, he knew of me, um, maybe through Doug Maynard, he knew of you, and I don't know how you knew, but he was the one that sort of went, huh, these two guys should, should know each other, you know, whatever. They're both, you know, like funky white kids, I guess. I don't know right. what his thinking was, right? Sure. At that time, I was playing, uh, Jesse Johnson had uh, seen me play with Alexander O'Neill at First Avenue, and Jesse had called me like the day after, a couple of days after, uh, I was playing guitar, right, guitar with Alexander. Got it. And he said, I'm putting this band together. Um, he had already left the time at that point. He said, I'm putting this band together, um, and I want to know if you want to come audition as the guitar player. And that was Tamara in the scene. Margaret that he Cox, had yeah. gotten signed to A&M, John McClain. Right. And uh, so, so I think Dan knew me from that context, maybe, as playing guitar with Alexander O'Neill. That's how I knew Dan. He was on the road with us, uh, oh. managing Alexander. I had done Alexander's first tour as a guitar player. He, he just, for some reason, thought you and I should get in the studio. And um, yeah, and there's that little studio owned by the Brojos. The Brojos, yes. And, um, and I don't know what the context was. I think it was just to see if we could write a song or something, you know? He was yeah, just I was, trying to I was looking for the, my first single, and Dan said, I think I got, I believe this is how I went down. Dan said, I got this co-writer you should really check out. He's yeah. new in town, and we got together, and if memory serves me, yeah, we knocked that thing out of the park. It was exactly what my record company was looking for. Yeah. And your lyric on that, with the exception of my third verse that we all love so much, uh, <laughs> it, it became no, my first I'm single. Taking the, uh, I'm taking the fifth. Pleading the fifth on that, yeah. So anyway... <laughs> Oliver and I, that's where we hooked up and we became fast friends. Yes, that became my first single by the name of Rich Man. And then we continued our friendship and our writing friendship. Right. And I was on my way to L.A. to go make a video for this song called Rich Man. I had, you know, back in those days, they were spending... Well, we had... 
Yeah. Well, we had, so right after that, that we did that several weeks or months, you know, my sense of like how long, but it wasn't, we had connected and wasn't long after that, that I had written a song and I wanted to do the demo. And I remembered like, you know, like what a badass you were. And, you know, I wanted your help with keyboards and stuff like that. And I said, Hey, you want to play on this song that I just wrote? And we got back in, we went back to the Brojo studio and we did a similar day on, on that song. I had the song, but like we reprogrammed it and we, you know, we redid it for whatever reason. And I'll let you continue the story. You left with a cassette of the demo I did in your, in your, you know, in your suitcase when you headed out to do the video in LA of rich man. Right. Right. So here I am in LA. I'm learning all these dance steps. I'm working with this choreographer. We had become super good friends at that point in time. And she said, you know, I actually have a record deal. And I was like, isn't that cute? (laughs) Isn't that, that's so cute. Really? She said, well, I'm looking for songs. I went, well, I, new friend of mine and I, he just wrote a song and I, maybe this would work for you. And I believe if I'm, help me if I'm not saying this right, but I think I just gave her the the cassette. She ended up loving it. Right. And then she got in touch with you or her manager or the record label got in touch with you. And you all formed this great uh, relationship together. Right. And maybe you should tell them who this person ended up being or a little bit more about that. Oh, well, well, okay. So yeah, you did. You, you played the, the, the song for her or handed her the cassette. I'm not sure. I had this call and this like absolutely like caffeinated, you know, English voice came blasting through the phone. And it, it was, uh, uh, Gemma Corfield who, um, was running Virgin records at the time. And mm-hmm. that was, uh, who, uh, the, this choreographer, it, Choreographer was Paul Abdul, right? And she was uh, um, she was at that time choreographing all the you know like the hottest acts, and she had just come off of doing Jan- Jacksons, Janet, yep. ZZ Top, all that mm. funky you know choreography with the furry guitars, and um, she signed a Virgin. And so essentially, I got a call saying you know uh, you know from Gemma saying like we heard this song, we love it. Who are you? You know, what have you done? Are you a producer? You know, which, to, I, and I just lied my ass off. I had never produced anything yes, other than. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I produced that cassette you have in your hand. You know, right. they, she, she said, we want to fly out and meet you. Um, if they didn't quite somehow trust, there were two things they didn't trust. Paula had had a bad first experience in the studio. Right. With LA and Babyface. Think, yep. We'll go into it, but it was a bad experience. It didn't didn't help her confidence. It wasn't, you know, and also I don't think they really fully trusted. Like they wanted, like, who's this guy? We've never heard of him in, you know, in Minnesota. So Gemma and Paula flew out and um, we had a meeting. I remember um, Dan Brennan had arranged for me to be able to like sit with my feet up on the console at Creation (laughs) Studios and look professional because the fact is, is that, uh, yeah, you know, um, you know, I did a lot of the programming and, you know, stuff in my room, you know, mm-hmm. in my room at Summit. Summit Avenue. We, yes. Yeah. And that was the beginning of it. And they agreed to come back um, once I had cut a track. I ended up recutting a track for it. And I must tell you, I've always regretted that, recutting that track. And it's a lesson learned. We all know this. But, like, you know, I recut the track. I don't know why, but... um it's going to make it better now. It's going to make the real record now, yeah. you know, that feeling. And man, I've always loved the feel of the demo that you and I did way better. Really? Um, oh, yeah. I got to hear oh, that. Oh, my somewhere. God. Absolutely. But I mean, that's neither here nor there. And it was a hit record and everything that came from it was great. But for me personally, the the feel of that first swipe that we did at it was that's the shit. Did you ever fathom? Right. That, that that record would do what it did. I literally, literally, so I ended up doing three songs, you know, so that was called It's Just the Way That You Love Me. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote another one, that, uh, Forever Your Girl. And then last minute, they needed one more song for the record. And I got another sort of frantic call from Gemma, you know, asking if I had anything. And, you know, I won't go into the whole story of Opposites, but it ended up being Opposites Attract. I remember there was what was the early days of MIDI, right? 
and and for some reason with the new MPC 60, um, it had some bugs, you know, and I had so much shit happening on the on the one, you know, because yeah. in those days everything was like bam, yeah. right? So I had like horn hits and kick drums and fuck, and everything was come chords, stabs. <laughs> Everything was coming on. For some reason, the NPC 60 at that time was just like, like it couldn't handle the amount of information on the one. So it slowed down. Like, you know, at the one, it would kind of go like when it was locked to Simpty. So when I went to cut the track and I cut whatever, and it like, so it didn't like every time it hit the one, it was like, it, it would slow down and, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was committed to it. I was uh, on a, I had like a week to cut the track, fly out to LA to cut a vocals. All that to say that I handed in the mix for that with an apology, you know, saying, right. I, I fucking missed the boat on this. You know, I'm sorry. Like I tried. It was one of those, like, I just felt like I had so missed the mark on that song. And um, I really had a written apology. So to answer your question, did I think that this was going to like do what it did? Like in no way, shape or form. I didn't think I would ever get asked to write or produce a record again. I mean, I literally was like embarrassed, you know, and I managed to cover up. If you really listen to that record opposites, which was the biggest hit that I had, I was like number, uh, it was, four weeks at number one on both what they had, you know, R&B and pop charts at the time. But if you listen super clean, I did some things to mask like the, the slowdown and, you know, some 16th notes through the one, whatever, but it still has a little hiccup, you know, but um, it didn't seem to affect the overall obviously no. impact of the record. But no. yeah, I had been offered to uh, uh, give that song the way that you love me while you were out in LA doing the video I had sent that song because I was proud of it to my old man in New York. I thought uh-huh. I did, you know, and I sent him this cassette and little did I know that he had played it for um, Russ Titleman. Right. Great producer. Made mm-hmm. some of the, my favorite records of all time from Ricky Lee Jones to, you know, um, uh, um, Stevie Winwood. I mean, just amazing producer. And he had played him the song, I don't know when and where, hanging out at the lanes one night, not sure. But I had gotten a call from Russ saying, man, I heard this track and that was our demo. Um, and I love it. And I want to cut it on Shaka Khan. Oh, and um, that had happened just before the Gemma phone call. You know, I bring that up because it was an interesting choice to pick Paula over Shaka. Shaka. And Shaka was hot. She just came off of I Feel I For feel You. That for you. Right. Yeah. It. So here's the thing, and here was the logic. And I mean, you know, once again, like I, I kind of, it was a counterintuitive decision. But he was asking me if I wanted to co produce it. He wanted to use the track, the original track that as the starting point that you and I had done, you know, um, and embellish it, change it, and then have Shaka sing on it. He wanted me to co-produce, and I ran it by Dan, who we've mentioned several times, you know? I said, what do you think? You know, because the second call came in for Paula, who was completely unknown, and the only right. thing that anybody knew about her was that she was a super trendy, up-and-coming choreographer, right? And, you know, got to give Dan Brennan credit for this advice. And he basically said, well, if you give the record to Shaka, and it's a hit, Everyone's going to look at it, look at the liner notes, and they're going to see, like, Shaka, right? Yes, Shaka, and they're going to see Russ Titleman. And you're going to be sort of like a little, you know, asterisk co-produced by. And the impact of that will not be the same as if you have a hit with this, you know, unknown artist, female artist over here, first record nobody's heard of, and you're producing it. And if you have a hit, it's a game changer and people are going to see your name and they're going to, you know, and it it will have a different impact. And I took that advice, which Mm. I lost a lot of sleep over because you can imagine, I mean, Shaka Khan is one of my favorite all time female singers. And I feel for you. 
which was Prince's song, had just been a hit. And for so many reasons, I wanted to be on that train, you know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't make that choice. And, you know, as I say, the rest is history. Um, had it been a hit for Shaka, not so much, not sure how much traction that would have given me personally, you know? Ollie, how, I, did, that, how did that record, the success of that record change your life? Opportunity-wise oh. and financially. Well, I mean, I was I was still playing gigging locally in Minneapolis right when you and I met, and mm-hmm. I was doing every gig that came down the pipe, you know. And I was doing I was rehearsing with Tamara in the scene, you know, in the warehouse for the for for that thing. But I was playing drum gigs with whomever, you know, Bingham McCabe and TC Jammers and Doug Maynard and like everything. I was still a working musician. I was not making much money. And, um, you know, I was living in a house with five other guys. Right. After I wrote that record, before it even came out, Virgin walked me over to their publishing company and offered me a deal. I mean, and I, once again, like, you know, my mentality was like, they were offering me amount of money that was game changing. It allowed me to like, and I have to worry about money for a long time and also to buy a 24-track tape machine and a console, mm-hmm. get a house, you know? I moved in, you know, Westridge Drive near, near yep. Paisley Park. Yep. That in of itself was a game changer. But they gave me an amount of money that I thought, these poor fuckers, man, <laughs> they really are dumb. <laughs> like, I felt like I had just gotten over, you know? Over time, they made millions on that Of course. Deal. But... It changed my life. My phone started ringing. A lot yeah. of other people wanted songs like the songs I writ- wrote, and they wanted productions like the productions that I had done that you were a big part of, man. You're playing and your input and, you know, so much a part of what I was doing at, at that time and so important to the sound of those records and as a sounding board and also a lot of the time, too, you know, as a fucking cheerleader for me. You know, big time. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, all doubts all the time about the songs, about, you know, the productions coming from where I came from and having a pretty big shadow mm. hanging mm. over me and pretty big shoes to fill that most most young guys don't have coming into the music business like that kind of like, you know, it's daunting. So like a lot of questioning on myself and you, back then and up until the present day, I've always been just you know such a champion of me and so supportive and that sometimes that voice in the studio that i just need to hear that tells me like dude (laughs) you're done you're done you know i can't think of the amount of times you just like step away from the guitar step away from the whatever you're done you know and um we we have a uh, a really good relationship that way though that's a trust that we have I can't remember the beginning of that sentence, but it had something to do with, I started to get a lot of calls for work yes. and you and I worked a lot. Cause I think I called you on every single thing you I pretty much ever did, whether it was to write with me on it, whether it was to play on it. Um, you know, and, uh, we had, you know, I mean, we did a lot of stuff, um, back then I remember. Um, sure and, did. uh, Venture, you know, recorded a bunch of stuff in my new studio, which was basically my living room in the in the house out in Eden Prairie. Till eventually, yeah, you know, I uh, I was doing the, the Sheena Easton record. Yep, I remember and, that. You know, one thing led to another with her, and that led to like a relationship at the time. You know, and uh, and which led to her kind of saying to me, if you're really serious about me, you know, you're going to, you'll move to LA and um, me being young and dumb and a little bit, um, you know, not thinking completely, you know, everything through was like, I got, you know, I got on a plane, I bought a house here. I think I did it all in the course of a day. It was the first house I looked at literally. (laughs) I I, I remember that. I just bought the house. We looked at, she came with me. I said, what do you think? And she said, but if you're, you know, if you don't buy this house, you know, if you're, essentially, if you're serious about me, you know, you'll buy this house. Long story short, that's what ended up leading to me moving out here yep. in 90, you know, that started, you know, I guess this, this other chapter. Yeah. Before I let you go and do your session, 
Oliver, yeah. you meditate almost daily. What does that give to you? Why is so that important? Twice daily. Yeah. Why is that one so morning, important to you? Evening. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what was the question? Sorry. Why is that so important? Why? Energy. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot going on in the world. <laughs> there's a lot of minutia. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on in my life. You know, I'm a single dad. Um, I have a lot of, like all, I have a lot of plates in the air and, and a lot of um, stresses. And I have found that by meditating, you know, half an hour in the morning, and a half an hour in the late afternoon, early evening, really just helps to um, ground me, center me, kind of allow me to reconnect with what's really important, where some of the the noise and the stresses and the stuff that is easy to get caught up in daily kind of, kind of falls away. And I get more perspective on what, you know, kind of what's really important. Um, and I find that is just, sometimes it's imperceptible, like the difference that it it's making. Sometimes it doesn't feel like I had a great meditation and my mind was busy and I feel like, you know, like what am I accomplishing here? Right. But, um, it has always, you know, helped me. And, you know, if, and if I start to question it or the times I've questioned it, you know, I ask myself, do, you know, do I feel better or do I feel worse after it? Right. Do I feel worse? You know, invariably over time, I mean, uh, I've always felt better. And I think it's made a big difference and allowed me to cope with a lot of things and stresses in my life. Well, it's time for you to go for your workout. You're one minute late. Before I let you go, yeah. I just got to say to you, man, yeah. I, you know how much I love you. You're my brother. Uh, I cannot wait until we get to finish our song, number one. Yeah, that's on this. you, motherfucker. No, you got to put a guitar solo on it. I'll oh, sing I do? It. Like, oh, yeah, oh, you, you do. Oh, yeah. okay. I love you. I mean, man, this, is so, this is one of the, the best conversations I could ever have with one of my dearest buddies, Tony, man. take care, good care of him. Kick his ass. I will, man. Today. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll hurt him extra for you today, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Ollie, I love you. I love you, Polly. Yeah. Don't, don't go uh, anywhere. I got to end the show over on this camera. Okay. Episode 38 in the books with my dear buddy, Oliver Liebler. Liebler? Liebler. <laughs> the, the Liebler elf. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just a perfect way to end this. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razzo. Artist relations by Owen Sartori. Video editing by Tanner Montague. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, old friends are the best kind of friends. Yeah.